Okay, good morning, everybody. Um, we're here to talk about uh, Kashras, um, and two parts of the same question, really, and they are um, why food needs to have hashkach on it, and the other side of it is, well, what qualifies one hashkacha to do a job, and we say, well, this person is not, we don't feel as qualified to do that. Just a little bit about myself, I work at the CRC, the Chicago Clinical Council, right around around the corner, basically. Um, I've been here for about six years. Before that, I worked at the OU, also in Kashras. Um, so I'm here to talk about, um, we're going to, if I can, not mention names of people. Not, I'm not here to talk about specific people, but just to give a picture of, well, what does it take to give a good hashkacha? Why does it need hashkacha? And then why, if you call our office and you say, no, we don't, we don't recommend that hashkacha, what would be behind that? What could be the reason why we wouldn't, why one person does or doesn't do a good job? Um, some of you may remember, um, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, when people looked to decide if food was kosher, they picked up the label, and they looked at the ingredients, and it basically was, as long as they didn't see lard on there, they decided it was kosher. Any, any word that was too long to pronounce, that was for sure kosher, and everything didn't look really terrible, it was fine, and, you know, they just read the ingredients, and that might have been correct at that time. Um, life has advanced and things have become much more complicated and sophisticated. Um, and surely we've become more knowledgeable. And between that, nowadays it's pretty not common. Nowadays, for simple items, we buy them just by looking at them. But when things get more processed, we have a feel that we need to have hashkach on them. I'm going to talk about some of the reasons why. Um, the first reason, or most, what's, what's really the most obvious reason is, the ingredient panel doesn't always tell the whole story. There are things that are in the food that don't get listed on the ingredient panel. Now, I'll, I'll mention a few of them. Um, if any of you have ever walked into the back of a bakery, you walk into Breadsmith right here down the street, or you may even use it in your own house, you'll see that they don't put the breads and the chalas right onto the trays. They use sheet liners that go on those sheets. They, they go on the pans, uh, which help the, the breads not stick onto the pans. As you may know, many of those, sheet, those liners are greased. I mean, if you'd feel it, you'd feel that it has a, a really a thick greasing, a greasing on it that can come off, um, which may or may not be kosher. And that lining that's on, that, that greasing that's on there doesn't get listed as an ingredient. We have ingredients, you know, we have flour and water and yeast and eggs, I don't know, whatever else is in the, in the bread, but those kind of things that don't get listed. Um, you have something called emulsifiers. When you, they may or may not be listed. An emulsifier helps uh, keep items together. Like, it was like in a dressing, keep the water and the oil parts with the other. They may not be listed. And there's something called an antifoam. Um, I'll tell you the classic way of what an antifoam was used. It's to prevent foaming in the product. And when you make um, maple syrup, so at one part of the process, you have to cook up the syrup. It's a, it's a sap that comes out of a tree. And you cook it up, and it gets very foamy. And the way they would prevent the foam would just get in the way of everything. And what they would do is they would hang big piece of pig fat over the pot. And what would happen is as the pot heated up, it would start to melt the pig fat. The, and drips of oil, oil would drop into the, pig, into the pot of, of maple syrup. And the, the oil has the property of breaking apart the foam. So as it got hotter and it needed anti-foam, the anti-foam would drip in. Okay? Now nowadays it's a little more sophisticated. They don't hang you know, pieces of, that, of meat on top of the pot. But they do other things that are oil-based um, that may, uh, may or may not be kosher. And again, those are not listed. Um, one last example. Um, in a vitamin, 
is most people take vitamins as just in a pill form. And really what that pill form is, they took a lot of different powders and they pressed them together very tightly to the point that they, they hold together into, into a pill form. Well, there are some vitamins, um, vitamin A, D, E, a couple of vitamins that don't come in powdered form. They need to come in liquid form. How do you get a liquid vitamin to stay in that pill? If you think about it, if you squish everything together, then that, the, the liquid parts of it are going to leak all over the place. They're not going to stay in the pill the way it's supposed to be. So what they do is they, before they put those powders together, they encapsulate tiny, tiny beadlets of those vitamins in gelatin. The gelatin, at each one, is, is really, really tiny. And what it does is now you've had your liquid is held together in this very neat little uh, package, and then when you squish the pieces together, it's really, it's like a salad. Okay? It's, it's very tiny, but it's like a salad, and it stays together in the pill form. Um, okay, so those are a couple of things that might not be listed, because they're, they're considered processing aids, or some kind of indirect ingredient that doesn't need to be listed. Then there's other ones. Um, I'm guessing everybody here has eaten something with NutraSweet in it, um, aspartame. And aspartame, NutraSweet, advertises themselves as being made from corn. It's natural and it's made from corn. But if you ever thought about it, you know, corn is sort of bland tasting and it's starchy and it has calories to it. Well, how did it turn into a NutraSweet that's really sweet and doesn't have any calories to it or has minimal calories? What happened? How did, how did it go from that to that? Well, what went from that to that is a couple of enzymes. Okay, enzymes are... Different things usually made by bacteria, um, which have, produce a chemical that helps in some process. Your body's got loads of enzymes in it, and the right enzyme is the one that helps, com helps convert the corn. I think it's two different conversions to turn the corn into NutraSweet, which is very different taste from each other. Or, um, I'm clear that every, everybody ate breakfast already, is that correct? Okay. So I'll tell you that the butter is graded by different levels. The highest level, the highest grade of butter is called double A. Double A butter is graded by how fresh it is. Okay. There's only one problem with double A butter. Um, it doesn't taste like anything. It's so fresh that, because what, what makes butter taste good is as it begins to rot a little bit and become a little rancid, that gives the taste that we associate with the positive taste of butter. And this double A butter is so fresh that it doesn't taste like anything. Well, so how do you sell double A butter? Which it's very fresh, and you might want to buy it. You say that's the that looks like the best butter, but when when you take it home, it's not going to taste like anything. So what they do is they add something called lipase. It's an it's an enzyme taken from uh, the throat of calves, uh, and they take that enzyme that helps digest the butter, helps digest the fats that are in there, and it helps make it taste good. So all all these kind of things are things that don't get listed when you open up a, when you look at the ingredient panel. You're going to see double A butter. You're going to just see cream or whatever you know. A couple of ingredients. You're not going to see that it has light paste from calf throats. Oh gosh, who wants to eat that? Right. So you're not going to see that listed because that doesn't need to be listed. Right? But the rules. These are things that don't need to be listed. Okay, so that's the, we have many more examples. I'm going to keep on moving. Um, there's one group of reasons why food needs to have hashkafa is because by reading the ingredient panel, you might not catch everything. There are things that don't have to legally be listed. They're just minor ingredients, what they call processing aids, and they, they're functional, and they don't get listed as part of the food. Then we have a next group of items, which are ingredients that you would see that are not descriptive. When you see the name, you don't really know what you're looking at. And the best example of that is a flavor. Okay, when you pick up 
anything, just lots and lots of foods have flavors in them, and legally they write on it that it has a natural flavor or an artificial flavor, or however they describe it, but they don't tell you what's in the flavor, and that's, because that's a trade secret. It's their, that it's very proprietary what's in the food that makes it taste like whatever they want it to. And the way they make those flavors is, well, most people think that a flavor, let's say we take a, uh, orange flavor, well, they think as well they squeezed oranges and they s- somehow made it, you know, got that, concentrated that flavor, which is, and that's not what happens. Um, when, when they describe a flavor as natural, great flavor, okay, most people read that as a, like as a sentence, it's a phrase. It's natural, great flavor. It's really not, it's really three independent words. It is something that's natural, and it tastes like grapes, and it gives a flavor. Um, but it has n- those three words have nothing to do with each other. It, it never saw a grape in its life. It's really it's a concoction of chemicals that made it taste like that. If those chemicals happen to come from a natural source, then it's called natural grape flavor. But they have nothing to do with grapes. I stood in a room once with a whole group of flavor, uh, I forget what they call themselves, people who work with flavors, and they were doing, uh, it was a training for them. And they said, everybody has to come up. Each person got a little schnapps glass of grape juice. And they swished it around their mouth. And each person then described what he was tasting. And the people who, use these, who do this for a living, they have a whole language of their own to describe it. It's very much like what you read on the back of a wine bottle. Okay? But instead of it saying that it has a fruity flavor, this has a brown note. And it has a green tone. And it has a woody taste to it. And it's like, what are they talking about? But they don't know what they're talking about. And so each one of them had to switch to this in the, around the mouth. And then they could describe if the two seconds it had this note and this taste and this tone. And they described what they were tasting. And what the reason why they do that is because they said, okay, now I need a woody note after four seconds. That's what it has to it. How will I create something that has that? So they open a book. We have them at the CCC, they're this fat, these books. They turn the pages, and they find the, the chemical that gives a woody note after four seconds. Okay, I haven't a clue what that is, but they do. And they can then, so they, they say, okay, there were, there were four elements to this taste. They get put in chemicals that give each one of those elements, and now they've recreated a grape flavor. Okay, that's how they, re- now they, of course, then, add their own twist to it. Because each, you know, I've ever, they can all do grape basically the same, but each one's got their own version of how they do it. They throw a little of this and a little of that to make it just so, just how they want it. Um, but so that grape flavor has nothing to do with grapes. Um, so I guess that's good news because usually grape products are not kosher. Yes? like our butterfly Yeah, that's correct. It's, it's natural. No, it's natural butter flavor pan. It's nat- how did it get natural butter flavor? Because that doesn't do with butter. It didn't come from butter. It's, it's the butter flavor, butyric acid, that came from a natural source. It didn't come from the butter itself. That's okay. That, that's very reasonable. The, the, most people, if they would watch how they make these flavors, really would go back to the stuff that's not flavor. Because it, it's really hard to believe that all those assorted colors of chemicals mixed together, that somehow tastes like, uh, I don't know, hazelnut. You know? I mean, it, it really does taste like hazelnut, but it's like, oh gosh, that wasn't what I had in mind. You know? that's, okay. So there's all kinds of, there are all kinds of things. I'm, I'm really not going to tell you the gory details on what kind of animal parts they take these flavors from, but they really can come from a wide variety of things that could be really not kosher. Um, so flavors is really, it's really, it's a mystery. You don't know what you're getting in there. Um, the, what they describe that has nothing to do with, with what it's made out of. And related to that is colors. Some of you may, may know, a couple of weeks ago, just maybe a month or two ago, Starbucks um, was very proud to tell everybody that their, I believe it was it the 
orange, marshmallow. I forgot which one it was. One of their, one of their, one of their drinks was now going to be, have a natural color to it. And they were very proud of it. And they told everybody about it, and it, it didn't last for more than a couple of days, because as soon as people found out that the natural orange color they were getting came from a bug, from a cochineal, from what's called carmine. This carmine bug gives really great reds and oranges and purples. Okay? And they, when people realized that, it was like, you know, thanks, but no thanks. You know, we, we don't want the natural flavor. So they, they quickly backtracked and decided they would get the natural flavor from, I believe, beta carotene. From carrot. I don't remember what it was. Something, they switched what they were going to get it from. Um, but that was a natural flavor. It was a natural, I'm talking, it was a natural color. This was a, excuse me, a color. It was, a, the colors generally are better than flavors. And the colors, the natural colors tend to come from natural things like beets and spinach and other things that are like what you'd sort of be expecting. But they don't always, the colors, again, one of the most famous ones is this one, the carmine, that makes very good red, oranges, and purples. And there's one that's made from wine, um, which is also not kosher, as you can, often not kosher. Another thing, um, what, we, what everybody considers, and I don't want to discourage you from thinking this, that water is the easiest, simplest, most kosher item, and it really is. But water in a food item is not always as simple as water, like when you just go out and buy a bottle of water. And that is because companies have learned to become very efficient, and nothing gets wasted. No energy, no products, everything in a plant is used and reused as often as they can. So, in a company that was making um, wine vinegar, as a, as a part of the process of making wine vinegar, there are vapors that are escaping out into the air, and in some states, it's illegal to allow those vapors to escape out. They're considered harmful, and they're not allowed to let them escape. So what they did is, as the vapors are escaping out, the, the stack that they're escaping out of passes through a piece of equipment, through which is trickling water, and the water captures all those vapors. The vapors that are escaping are called ethyl acetate, and the ethyl acetate is getting diluted into the water. So as the vapors pass through the water, all the ethyl acetate is being transferred into the water, and then the vapors that go out are health safe vapors, and they go out into the atmosphere. So now they have this, all this water filled with this ethyl acetate. What are they going to do with it? This is, this is stuff that they weren't allowed to discard because it's not safe. What will they do with it? So they had a brilliant idea. Ethyl acetate is an intermediary in between the making of alcohol and vinegar. For those of you who are more chemically inclined, alcohol is ethanol. The alcohol that you started with ethyl is an ethyl alcohol, and vinegar is acetic acid. Ethyl acetate is an intermediary in between them. So if you take this water and you mix it into your vinegar, it will turn itself into vinegar. The ethyl acetate will go from being this intermediary into being actual vinegar, and it'll be totally harmless. So what they did is, they took the water from the wine side of the plant, from the non-side, the kosher side of the plant, and took it over to the kosher side of the plant, where they made white distilled vinegar, which uses lots of water in it. As part of the process, you use lots of water. So, so the rabbi in this plant, it, his focus was on the alcohol, making sure the alcohol coming in was kosher. But little did he know that it was the water in the plant that was the trace. The, the alcohol was fine, but the water was coming from the, the wine side. If I lost you... It's okay. The, just the idea was, here was water in the company. The water was straight. The water was coming from the other side of the plant. Within the plant, the water had become non-kosher on one side of the plant and was being pulled over to the other side of the plant. So, who would think like that? Who's expecting that? So, again, 
I'm not trying to frighten you and say, no, don't go buy bottled water unless it has hefs on it. That's, I don't mean that. I mean to say, we're just trying to, I'm trying to bring out a point that there are things that we look for supervision of when food gets more complicated and we start, you start to be a little concerned that maybe I don't know exactly what's going on there. Lastly in this one is um, vanilla. I'm sure everybody here who's baked, bakes with vanilla. And you know that vanilla, is natural, real vanilla, is much more expensive than the artificial what's called vanillin, it's much more expensive. So somebody came up with a great idea. Um, I don't know if it was commercialized, but they came up with a, they made a patent for how to create vanillin using natural ingredients. And what they were, they were legally allowed to call that natural vanilla because it was natural and it had the taste of vanilla. And they were able to call that natural vanilla even though it didn't come from vanilla beans. It came from something else. It was made through a, a chemical process. I don't remember the details of it. But they were able to call it natural vanilla, even though it had nothing to do with vanilla beans. It never saw Madagascar in its life. It had nothing to do with anything. It was, it was natural vanilla, even though the vanilla and the natural, they were not, they were, again, you think of it as a phrase, natural vanilla. No, 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 it's natural and vanilla. Those are two different things, you know. Okay. So we've done some items that have ingredients missing on their label, and some that the ingredient is not descriptive enough. When we look at it, we don't realize what we're reading. Okay, now we move to a system that's not ingredient related. And that is equipment. We know in a kosher home we have meat dishes and dairy dishes. That's because if we cook something in a meat pot, it's flesh And therefore we can't cook something milk in that same pot. Well, in a commercial operation, it's even more serious. Because their equipment doesn't cost $20, $30 for a pot. It costs $20 million for a pot. So their equipment is really used for all types of things. Okay, that equipment doesn't just sit around. My, in my kitchen, there are drawers full of pots that haven't been used in days. That doesn't happen in companies. In big commercial operations, their equipment gets used all the time. Too expensive to let it just sit around. So there's a company. It's, it's actually The company is actually not too far from here. That makes... Um, Vegetable, and an, vegetable oil and animal fat. This company has three sections to the company. One section of the company is all animal fat. And of course that's not kosher. One section of the company is all vegetable oil product. And that product is certified by a very reputable Hushkoff. Okay, the middle part of the pan is equipment that's sometimes used for the vegetable, sometimes it's used for the animal. Which is to say the company, you know, they, there's only... They can, can't be sure their business is going to be this way or that way. They have extra equipment. Depending if they need more for vegetable, they use it for vegetable. If they need more for animal, they use it for animal. So part of the company that's certified by the reputable Hashgah, the all-vegetable part of the company, that part has a mashkiach there. I forgot how many, but many hours a day there's a mashkiach there, making sure things are the way they're supposed to be. The middle part of the plane that's used for animal and vegetable is under a certification that we would not recommend. That the rabbi for that certification shows up once a year. He comes once a year to check up on his part, which is the most complicated part of the company. The, the part that's all vegetable, that's the easy part of the company. And their rabbis here to make sure it stays all vegetable. He wants to make sure no animal fat gets sent there by mistake. The middle part of the plant, which is the animal and vegetable mixed together, they come once a year. They, basically, they're doing nothing. Okay? They're doing nothing to, to check that. And you might think that like the pots in Europe in your pantry, they're all clean. There's nothing to it. The pots in an oil company, the, the equipment in oil companies, 
never gets clean. It's caked on. You, you, you wouldn't look at these. You would never think of using equipment that looked like that in your house. It's caked on oils and animal fat. Inches and inches thick of globs of stuff from yesterday and last weekend, six years ago, all sitting cooked on because it doesn't spoil and the product is okay and they're happy and no one, no, they have no problems here. So, equipment-wise, you would never dream that this stuff was kosher. You wouldn't dream. I, I won't explain to you why this rabbit, how he justifies why he does what he does, but not, not important. You all understand that that's not the way you make kosher oil. Um, I don't know if any of you tuna or salmon canned products. When you make something canned, even fruits and vegetables, the way you make canned products is a, use a, word, a technology to it, which is you put the food into the can or the pouch or whatever it is. You seal that can so nothing can get in. And then you cook it up. Basically, you cook it up. And the cooking process kills any microbes that are inside of the pouch or the can. And since the container is sealed, nothing new can get into it. And therefore, it'll never spoil. It'll last basically forever. Because whatever's inside has been killed, and nothing new can get inside, so it'll stay like that. It'll stay forever. It'll, it'll never spoil. Cook it once it's in the can? They cook it in the can, yes. Some items are cooked before, like tuna happens to be cooked before also, but everything that's in a can uh, has to be cooked. That, that's the, the, the chachma of it. That's the, the way it works, is that you, after it's in the can, the idea is not to cook it. The idea is not to make it more tasty. The idea is to you have to process it at high temperatures for a long time, basically, you're cooking it, um, to kill everything that's in there. So, when you make tuna, tuna is the example I'm going to use, when you make tuna fish, um, we like to eat the lighter or the white parts of the tuna fish. Okay? But the end parts of the tuna that are dark, those are not, people don't eat that really. And so what they do is they turn that into pet food. So, Every company that's making tuna fish for humans is also making tuna fish for pets. Okay. That's okay. That's still kosher. Well, since they're making tuna for pets, they also start making shrimp and meat and chicken for pets also. Okay, actually, they make it for humans. You can buy canned shrimp also. So those kind of plants, it's the same processing that has to be done for the tuna. It has to be done for the front of the tuna as to the back of the tuna, or for the chicken or for the shrimp. I don't know. It's exactly the same, but... By and large, it's the same processing. So those same plants are doing a cooking up. Today, right now, they're cooking up cans of shrimp. And tomorrow, they're cooking up cans of tuna fish. Or today, it's chicken, and tomorrow, it's tuna. So th- that same equipment is, that's used to cook up this is used to cook up that also. Um, I don't know what gory examples you want. Okay. So, I'll leave you with that. Okay, so, our third issue was that in giving supervision, if I were to look at a can of tuna, and I would see it says um, tuna fish, um, I don't know, broth, uh, vegetable broth, uh, five different ingredients, and let's say they were all kosher. Let's say I look at them and I could determine that they were all kosher. I still have to think about it, well, what kind of equipment was that made on? Is that equipment, that, is, is there something about the processing that makes it need a hechsher? So I mentioned before bottled water. There are people who would tell you, well, when you fill the w- water into the bottles, um, some companies will pasteurize it on equipment that's used for other things. Okay? We don't really believe that's a concern, but you have to just think about that. Is, how did they get the water into the bottle, and is there heat involved? Are there other things running on that equipment? So those are things you have to think about before you come to that decision. So just because it says 100% pure apple juice, well, what else is in there? What, what, how did, what kind of equipment was used to make that apple juice the way it is? I'm, not, I'm skipping my apple juice example. 
I'll just have something to eat when I'm finished. Okay. And then lastly is, lastly is, aside, we've talked about two different issues about ingredients, one about the equipment, and then there are halachic issues. That is to say, there are issues that have to be looked at from a rabbinic perspective to decide whether the food is kosher. As an example of that, um, have, ever, have you ever seen, you may have been served at a, at a simcha, um, very small potatoes, um, I don't know what you call them, um, these really tiny little potatoes that are... No, I don't even mean those. I mean actually circular, like oh, round potatoes. Yes, so those potatoes don't, no caterer peels potatoes that are that small. No one sits with a little peeler peeling all those potatoes. What he does is they come out of a can, okay? And they come out of a very large can, usually called the number 10 can, okay? It's just the size of the can, it's a big can. They open it up, and now I told you, they're coming out of a can, it means they're already cooked. They're coming out of the can already cooked, they brown them and spice them, and, you know, they do things to make it a little better, right? It's really just a potato in there. It's just a cooked potato in the can. They dress it up a little bit to make it presentable to serve. Well, there's a question whether those potatoes cooked in that can require Bishul Yisrael. Bishul Yisrael means certain foods, a Jewish person has to be involved in the cooking. And there's a question whether those potatoes in that can need to have a, a Jew participate or not. Okay. What the question is is not important for us right now, but it's something that someone had to consider. Even though it's only potatoes and water, let's say that's all the ingredients were. And let's say we knew the equipment was only used for potatoes or only for vegetables. Okay. It was all kosher. There wasn't any other concerns. There's an, another consideration is, is there other halachic things to consider before making this food kosher? In this case, does a rabbi have, does a Jewish person have to participate in the cooking? Okay. Or similarly, canned mushrooms. Okay. Can, let's, again, if, the, if we knew the ingredients were okay, and we knew the equipment was only used for, for mushrooms, there were some mushrooms that have bugs in them. So, someone needs to think that through. We, we call that a halachic issue. Someone has to think about that. Is this a, an item that has bugs in it that someone has to think about before they put it into the can? Again, so we know our ingredients, it's just mushrooms and water, and we know, let's say the equipment we knew was only used for mushrooms, or only for vegetables, so we're okay from that side, but we have halachic issues to think about as, is this kosher? Even if those two things were okay, is this kosher? So, with this, I'm winding down the first part I wanted to talk to you about, which is, why does food need hashkacha? What could go wrong? Why do I, why do I look for food to have hashkacha? Um, before I get to the next part, I will tell you um, that there are loads and loads of foods that don't need hashkacha. Um, we, we, as a local hashkacha, try to provide that information. So if you call the office and say, hi, I'm in Whole Foods and I'm trying to buy, uh, I don't know, this and this version of beans or rice or whatever, we'll try to help you and tell you if it does or doesn't need hashkacha. Um, for those of you who use smartphones, we have apps on all the smartphones except for Blackberries um, that help you with this kind of information. So we, we try to help people. We're not trying to discourage people from eating or forcing them to buy hashkacha because Sometimes it's, there's no reason to. You know, in my house, we have plenty of foods that don't have hashkacha. So we try to help people with that. Um, but I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to bring out is that there are many foods. It, it tends to be the foods that are more processed that need to have hashkacha on them. And I was trying to give you a little background as to why that is. You, you'll understand automatically that if all of that goes into deciding that a food needs hashkacha, that sort of tells you um, why one hashkacha might do a better job than another one. Okay, that sort of leads us into the next part is, well, why is this a recommended hashkoch and this one is not? And the, the simple way to understand it is, um, if somebody here had a, a pain in their knee and they needed a doctor, so they wouldn't um, open the yellow pages. I know nobody does anymore. They wouldn't search online for a physician, okay, for a physician 
and look for orthopedists, and whoever's name was listed first, or whoever's name looked nice, they would pick that person. Of course not, because just because, just because he graduated medical school, and just because he can get his name listed online, that doesn't mean that he's going to do a good job for me. Well, it's even less is required to become, to give certification. Okay, there are well over a thousand hashkachos worldwide. Of those, we accept or recognize two, three hundred of them as being reputable, um, because, frankly, anybody could stand up and set up a certification. Anybody could, literally anybody, if Rabbi Engel decided that he wanted to give hashkacha, he could stand up, he actually is a rabbi, and he can actually call himself uh, oratorical kosher, or he can call it whatever he wants to. But for that matter, but for that matter, any of you sitting here could open up a hashkacha, and you're not rabbis. But for that matter, you don't even have to be Jewish. It there isn't anyone who's going to tell somebody you can't, you are, or are not authorized to start up a hashkacha. Anybody who wants to can start up a certification. A doctor, at least you have to be licensed. Here, you can, it's sort of open season. Anybody can do whatever they want to. So, I'm going to break up the hashkachas into three groups. The first two are going to be really easy. The first one is the group, the ones that are reliable. Okay, well, whatever that means. They're reliable, they're reliable. And the opposite extreme are what we call the charlatans. These are people who do nothing. They either aren't qualified, they never show up, they, do, they don't even have any trappings of giving a reputable hashkacha. I told you about the vegetable oil company a few minutes ago. The real hashkacha spends five, six hours a day, excuse me, on the old vegetable part of the plant, and he comes once a year to the mixed animal vegetable. Well, obviously he's doing nothing. There's nobody home. It's a waste of, waste of time. He's doing nothing. But we have another, there was another person who... This is when I was at the OU. The OU was asked to come give hashkacha at a company. And they came in, and the company was already certified by one of these people who's worthless. And the company made fried eggs. Well, forget about that fried eggs probably need to be destroyed as well. The Jew has to participate. Forget about that. The company was making eggs and ham and eggs. So, of course, the equipment had to be cashed in between. Forget it. No, no, nothing. They didn't think about that. The, the most amazing part of the factory was... All the boxes that came out of the factory had a kosher logo on them. And the, the people, the people, the packing people, who were by no means rabbis, they weren't Jewish, it was their job that when the ham and eggs passed by, they had to cross out the logo on the ham and eggs. Okay? So forget about anything else. It's like, this is like, this is hashkafa. It's ridiculous. It, it, it's obviously, it's a waste. The person's doing zero. So this, this kind of hashkafa, it's easy. If you cross pass with one of these, now, as a consumer, you might not realize it, but... If someone who understands looks at this, in a minute they'll know that this, he's, there's nobody home. This is, this is not a hashkacha. We didn't even think about this hashkacha. The most difficult is the third class, which is right in the middle. And that is, we have people who are honest and sincere, knowledgeable. They're really fine people. And they're wonderful. Even most of them are rabbis who are reputable, good people who we return to for any other question. But for some reason, when it comes to hashkacha, they're not doing the right job. And those are the most difficult because if the kind of a person who, if you interacted with him, you would say, he's a great person. He, he's a person who would appear to be fit and the kind of person who should be giving certification on food. But yet, when you look deeper, you find out that it's not true. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about why. The first part is a lot of what we've been talking about. There's a lot of technical knowledge that goes into giving hashkacha. You have technical knowledge that they don't teach in yeshiva. This is not, you could be as knowledgeable as you want to, but this is not the kind of knowledge, it's the kind of knowledge that's learned from technical, not 
from halacha. It's learned from technical. I myself have taken all types of university classes to learn different pieces of information. And there's parts that are learned hands-on. There are parts learned from other people. And there are parts that are just a personality. Some people do better with math, and some people do better with science or English, and some people just relate to these technical issues better than others do. There was, there was once a rabbi. Two rabbis came to a company together. One was the, so to speak, everyday rabbi, and one was a visiting rabbi who was coming there to do a special production of this plant. And the company used a piece of equipment called a hydrostatic cooker. Okay. A hydrostatic cooker is a, a machine for processing canned foods. And it's about 40 or 50 feet tall. It's, it's an absolutely huge piece of equipment. It's a very complicated piece of equipment. So the rabbi, the visiting rabbi, says, this is used for non-kosher. Before we make the kosher product, I need to kosher it. Okay, how do you kosher something? We're going to fill it up with water, bring it to a boil, and then overflow it over the top. That's what it says in Shulchan Aruch. That's what you're supposed to do. So he says to the plant person, I need you to fill this thing up, bring it to a boil, and over the top. And the plant person is laughing at him. It's ridiculous. You, there's no way, physically, to fill this thing up with water and bo- bring it to a boil and boil it over the top. It's not happening. So here's the plant manager. He's like, laughing, Rabbi, you, you lost it. I, I can't possibly, it's like not possible for me to do that. And the rabbi is, is coming from a halachic perspective saying, that's what I need you to do. So they're, they're sort of arguing, and th- there's like no discussion because he's asking for something that, that it really is impossible. It's not possible for him to do it. So he's, he's saying, I won't call it kosher unless you do it. And the person is like, well, I, don't know, I can't help you. Finally, after a couple of minutes back and forth, the person says, you know what, Rabbi, I think I may have a solution for you. I may have a way to do it for you. Really? Great. Just give me a few minutes. He goes off to his office. A few minutes later, they start it up, and he sees the numbers that are measuring the temperature getting higher and higher. The water is getting up to 212 area, and then as it's getting to the right to the right temperatures, all of a sudden there's water pouring out over the top, and it's coming out of every place. And the rabbi is thrilled, and everything's happy, and he goes home, and he, was, he did a job. He insisted on the standards, and it was kosher. So after the visiting rabbi leaves, the regular rabbi says to the plate manager, he says, listen, you and I know, you and I know that there is no way that you fill that up with water and overflow it over that. We, I know the equipment and you know the equipment, and there's no way you did that. He says, a salami sandwich if you tell me what you did. I won't tell the other rabbi. Just tell me what you did. I'll give you a, I don't know if he said, you know, a Romanian sandwich, whatever it was. He says, I'll slip you something. You just, I'm just curious. He says, I don't care what you did. I'm just curious what the... See, he says, he says, look, he says, the rabbi was just insisting that I do something, and I, it was really important that we do it. So what I did was, I told the boys in the office that when the temperature gets up to about 212, they should turn on the sprinkler system, the fire suppressant system on the top, and water was spritzing every place, and the rabbi was happy, so I made the rabbi happy, and we walked away. Okay, so here's a, a well-meaning rabbi. Here's this visiting rabbi's well-meaning. And he, he insisted that we do the following. He insisted on something absolutely ridiculous and impossible. And they pulled the wool over his eyes. Because if you push people against the wall, then what are they going to do? He had no choice. So he came up with some, some story of how he did it. So we have people, you really have, some of the equipment is really complicated. Okay, there's equipment that, I told you, plants want to be very efficient. Well, when they heat up a product, if they heat it up, before they package it, it has to be cooled down. So there are, companies have figured out ways to recover the heat from a product by passing it into the next product before they package it. They have a hot product, 
let's say milk, when you make bottled milk has to be pasteurized. That is to say it gets heated up. Well, then they put it into a bottle, it's got to be cooled down. So what a waste of money it is to have, first make it hot, and then make it cold. First you pay to heat it up, and then you pay to cool it down. So what they do is they use the hot milk, to, they cool off milk by passing on its heat to the milk that's about to be pasteurized. Okay, they have a way of passing the heat from the hot milk that's already pasteurized to the raw milk, they call it, that's not pasteurized, and heating that up so it transfers its heat. So why waste money? I have cold milk that has to get hot, and I have hot milk that's got to get cold, so I exchange the heat. Well, if you don't understand how that works in the plant, you'll never be able to cash the equipment. It'll never happen. Okay, we have companies, I mentioned to you about water being traded. There's something in milk companies called cow water. Okay, what it is is not important, but it's water that's a result of, it comes from milk. Okay, that's, it's called cow water. Okay, it's, it's like a, a hazy, cloudy kind of water. It comes from milk. Dairy companies save that water for certain cleaning purposes. So there was a company that used that water to do their koshering. So they koshered from milkings to parav using milk. So, so if you don't know what cow water is and you don't know where it's going in the plant, you missed it. So you could be as well-meaning as you want to. You could know everything. If you don't understand the technicalities going on in the plant, you're not going to get it. You're not going to be able to do it. We, the CRC has recently been involved in giving hashkocha to um, a company that has many different parts. But the long and short of this company is, is that they move product from place to place. They don't actually create anything. They move products from here to there. And every time they move it, you have to make sure that, in fact, they're moving the same product. When they unload it from a ship into a tank, and then from a tank into a train, and then a train into a tank, and a tank into a rail car, and a rail car into a drum, every time it changes, we want to make sure that it's really the same product, that they're not slipping in some other stuff. Well, those places, every time that those transfers take place, is, a, is an area that's got a thousand pipes going in every which direction. And someone's got to trace those pipes and make sure there isn't a place for them to move, bring an other product into it, which there always is. Someone's got to go through the, trace all those pipes and determine that there isn't a way for them or cut the pipes, the, the interse- intersections where the other product could be mixed into this product. I once walked into a it was a juice-type plant, and I was there to see whether we should accept the hashkocha of somebody else. So he, the rabbi who gave hashkocha was showing me around the plant, and basically we were evaluating whether we should accept this hashkocha. So it's, I was there with this rabbi and someone from the plant. So we come through a certain place, and there's, I don't know, 50 tanks out in, in, out in, the, in the area where there are the tanks, and the rabbi says to me, so Rabbi Cohen, over here... Is where we keep our kosher tank of whatever. And the plant person says, no, no, Rabbi, it's over there. And the rabbi says, no, 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 this is the kosher tank. And the guy says, no, 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 Rabbi, that's the kosher tank. And they sat and bickered for a couple of minutes as to which was the kosher tank. Okay, but obviously, someplace in that maze of pipes floating around, the rabbi missed it. Okay, the rabbi missed it. He didn't catch that really his stuff was going this way instead of that way. Okay, so he, he, obviously he's missing something. He was a very fine person. As a, as a human being, and would I turn to him to ask him a question of, what should I do in my house on Chavez, and what should I do about my daughter getting married, he would be a good person to talk to, but he wasn't, he wasn't able to do his job here. Okay, last, I just got a two-minute warning. Last is, um, many people, it's the nature, the nature of rabbis, if I could say that word, or of nice people, to be trusting and accepting and 
believing other people. In particular, if the person is very qualified, has a lot of initials after their name, and such. And we, we, we like to believe people, most people are fine people. A company, it, it doesn't work in Hashkafa. I don't mean that we don't trust people at all. We work with companies and we have, we have long relationships with companies, but in the end of the day, is my job is to make sure things are true, not just to accept what he says is true. So we had a, there was a company making a frozen product, and this, fro- this, this company had five or six plants. And there was a hashkacha sending their, sending labels to, to this company saying, put my sticker, basically, on the product to, to tell everybody that it's a kosher product. So it turned out that that pl- product was made in five plants, some of which were kosher and some of which were not. Okay? Some plants were kosher, some were not. The rabbi told the guy, make sure you only use my stickers in plant A and B. Those are the kosher plants. And that's what they told him they were doing. Okay? We had no idea whether that was true. What happens if plant A was down and they needed more production in plant C? Would they send it to plant C? Would they, did they sincerely mean to do it from that point? Yeah. Do they know the difference? Do they, do they, do the plant is not trying to trick the rabbi, let's say. But it, you can't trust someone like that and let him do that. Um, as an example of that, as an example, I'll tell you a story, a quick story. I was once sitting on a, on a plane, and they come around to give drinks, and they said, what would you like to drink? And I said, can I have a Sprite? And the person who was giving up the drinks handed me a Sierra Mist. Sierra Mist is lemon-lime soda made by Pepsi. So, they're both kosher. Okay, but for my curiosity, I said, no, can I have a Sprite? So she picks up the can and she says, yeah, here it is. It took two or three times before she finally got to the point that she would say, this, oh, it's the same thing. Okay, now, I'm saying to you what, the, what really happened in this conversation. When I said, can I have Sprite, she didn't hear the word Sprite. She heard the word lemon-lime soda. That's what she heard. And she honestly answered, yeah, here's a lemon-lime soda. That's what I have, that's lemon-lime soda. It was only after I pressed her that she finally understand that I was being insistent that I specifically have the Sprite version of it and not the, the Sierra Mist version of it. Okay? And what the Gemara calls that, when something is not important to you, you will talk about it without realizing the fine nuances. To her, to her answering the question, it was not important whether it was Sprite or Sierra Mist. To her, she was trying to give the customer a uh, lemon-lime soda. To her, it made no difference whether it was spikeless. To her, those were the same things were equivalents. Now, imagine if one was kosher and one was not. That is to say, for me, it was important. For me, it was important that it was only, I only get Sprite. But to her, it wasn't important. So she sincerely was telling me what she thought was the truth, which was, this is the same thing. I'm giving you what you asked for. She wasn't trying to trick me. She, she was just giving me what, I, what she thought I was asking for. But unless it's important to the person they will say it without even understanding the meaning of what they're trying to say. So that person may not be evil. The person is just, does it, to them it's of no significance. To them, let's say Sierra Mist was not kosher, they wouldn't know. That doesn't mean anything. They're not thinking about kosher, they're thinking about soda. And to them, it was, it was the same thing. So, the last, what I was mentioning, the last part of, of giving a good hashkafa is, to, there's a certain amount of, not only do you need to know what you're doing, you need to be a certain amount of a, I don't use the word policeman, but a certain amount of coming as an outsider. The companies are, are not, the companies are very sincere about 
doing a good job at giving, at providing kosher food. But there are times when even in their sincerity, they, either the din doesn't let us trust them, or just impractical, it's not the thing on top of their minds, and we need to therefore do the supervision. Okay, thank you.